Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have both a guest interview and topic-based interview for you. So today's guest is Brian McMahon, and today's topic is on exogenous ketones, and this time a little bit more specific towards performance, although we do touch on a little bit of the recovery aspect of it as well. So for those of you who've been listening for a while, you'll know I've dove into this topic a few times in the past, and just sort of followed the research since exogenous ketones are very much in their infancy in terms of where they've been used in sports performance and recovery. And one of the original episodes I did on this topic, topic was with Brianna Stubbs, who is very much in the weeds when it comes to the research around exogenous ketones. And that was episode 202, if you're interested in going back in either re-listening or listening for the first time and just maybe comparing where things are at today versus what they were back then a few years ago when Brianna first came on the show. And one of the reasons why I'm diving back into this topic now is because we have had a lot more research. Now there's some some interesting stuff that would uh, indicate that there's possibly more usage, which I'll go over with Brian during this episode, along with just some protocols. So one reason I want to do this now is at the beginning of the year, I was starting to get really curious with exogenous ketones and started playing around with them in my own training and in a race actually as well. And I wanted to kind of get an experience for myself to pair with where the research was at and see what I both noticed as well as what I didn't notice. And in fact, one of the reasons why I wanted to do it during a race was because the races I do are kind of long. And for those of you who've been following along or do ultra marathons yourselves will recognize like digestion is a huge component of these sort of things. So, you know, if something works, even in your long run, it may not be working very well for you by that very end of a really long race. That's double digit hours. So I wanted to make sure this wasn't something that was going to be problematic digestively for me during longer races. And I actually stress tested that at the Rocky raccoon 100 this year, which that was my main focus for that race this year actually was to kind of give myself a longer session to kind of try that out after I had implemented it in training. Another reason I want to talk to Brian too, is I wanted to go over my protocol because to some degree he was part of that process, but I also wanted to fine tune it or get his thoughts on it as he's also been involved with a bunch of other athletes at the professional level, a lot of Tour de France athletes in terms of like proper implementation of this sort of thing. And what are some kind of targets and what to maybe look out for if you decide to dive into the world of exogenous ketones. So basically what we get into here is like, what is an exogenous ketone? What are the different types and why is it important when you decide I'm going to go buy an exogenous ketone to know the different types and what they could potentially do or not do for you, as well as how do you know you're taking in the right amount from one person to the next versus just a blanket recommendation. So that is some of the stuff we dive into along with some of the new research a little bit about Brian, though, before we get going, Brian McMahon works alongside Professor Kieran Clark, who has been a critical part of exogenous ketone research and formulation. Together with their team at Delta G, they have produced 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. This includes two very recent studies that explored exogenous ketone relationship with increasing natural levels of EPO as well as increasing circulating dopamine concentration, improving mental alertness, and improving post-exercise inflammation in endurance athletes. So 
one of the reasons why I liked Brian's approach and essentially Delta G's approach is because when you do look at the research, when it comes to exogenous ketones, it's basically all out of their lab coming from Oxford University. They are the company that actually got the DARPA funding originally when this started to become kind of more of a hot topic along the performance and tactical like range of potential. And they're behind all of that stuff. So they're the ones that are actually like formulating a lot of the different approaches that are used in these research studies. So when I would pick up a study, a couple of which we're going to talk to today along the lines of that uh, increased natural levels of EPO, as well as the circulating dopamine concentration, improving mental alertness and improving post-exercise inflammation. That was all their formula and their dosages. So if I want to potentially leverage that sort of thing with uh, exogenous ketones, it seems like it would be a good idea to find out exactly how and why they formulated it the way they did and figure out what the alternatives would maybe be. So we talk about that quite a bit, actually, on this episode. For those of you curious, we get into this in a fair bit of detail in the episode too, but my particular approach that I used at Rocky Raccoon and that I've been using in my training has been, I'll do one bottle of Delta G's performance ketone before a quality session. So I'm not taking these things every day or anything like that. I'm just using them for like really big sessions. So like if I have a key long run or something like that, where I'm really practicing race day specifics, I'll take one before that. And then on race day, I'll usually do the same thing right before, but then I'll also take another one every three hours or so after that. And that's really been, been the extent of it at this point in time. So we'll see where things get going from here on and uh, see if there's maybe some other application for them as we keep learning more. Cause even though we have learned a lot in the last year or so, on top of what we we already knew, there is a lot to know and a lot more to research with this stuff. So I think it's going to be an exciting topic to continue to follow as it starts to unfold. Before we get going with Brian, just a couple quick announcements. If you are in Austin or visiting Austin and want to meet up, I actually host a group run. It is called Outliers ATX. I work with a group here in town to put that on, and we meet at Metz Park on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., Week-to-week details for that can be found at at Outliers ATX on Instagram. Also, if you want to support the show, there's a few ways you can do it. One way that goes a really long ways is free. All you got to do is if you like an episode, share it with your friends, family, on social media. That goes a long way to help me grow the show. Also, liking and subscribing on your favorite podcast listening device helps as well as then you'll get the show right away anytime I put up a new one. If you want to support the show in other ways, monetarily, you can. If you head over to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO, the options are all on that page. That page is also the show's landing page with the catalog of all the previous episodes. If you want to go through that and see if there's any episodes you missed that you want to check in, it's a great spot to check it out. Like I said, there's also some donation spots there as well as a show Patreon page link. Show Patreon page gets you early release episodes and ad-free episodes. So they hit that right away and we get right to the topic at hand. If you're looking for some coaching, you can find that on my website at zachbitter.com. I offer a variety of options, including ready-made plans that follow my philosophy for a variety of different levels and a variety of different distances, as well as one-on-one support on coaching. And if you just want to chat, consultations. So zachbitter.com is where you can find that. And finally, show sponsors. This show has been supported all year long by my friends at LMNT. 
LMNT makes the electrolyte supplement I take. I got my sweat tests done earlier this year, and it turns out I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes per liter. So I'll take one of the packets of Element, which actually has a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, and mix about half of one of those in a bottle for when I'm out there training. And uh, I'll sometimes put some of it in my coffee too in the morning. You might be wondering what in your coffee? So they have a variety of different flavors, one of which is chocolate. So that's the one I'll put in my coffee. The ones that I'll put in my bottles when I'm out racing or in training are their fruity flavors usually. So those are citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, uh, mango chili, lemon habanero, and watermelon salt. So if you want to dis- to check those out and decide if it's something that's going to fit your rotation, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. If you use that URL, it will actually prompt you with your first purchase to get a free sample pack. So that free sample pack will allow you to try each one of those flavors and find out which one is your favorite. Right now, my favorite's probably watermelon, although I will go with raspberry from time to time. And then, like I said, chocolate in my coffee. So drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO if you want to check out that free sample pack. Also, one thing I will mention before Brian comes on is if you want to get the same experience I did, you can actually talk with Brian by going to the Delta G website. It's just deltagketones.com. When you go there, you can check out their full catalog as well as sign up for a consultation with Brian. He will walk you through the process that we talk about today and help you decide if it's something that's worth considering with your own training and racing. So that website's deltagketones.com. Also, go ahead and give them a follow over on Instagram at deltag.ketones. They put up a lot of interesting new research over there on their Instagram page. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Today, I am joined by Brian McMahon. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Zach, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be a fun chat. I've been getting curious yet again, I think, with exogenous ketones. It's been an interesting, it's just an interesting like aspect to performance for me personally, because one, it's sort of it sort of aligns a little bit, or at least falls in the same categories. I think a lot of the people following a lower carbohydrate diet, it just comes up a lot in that kind of, in that sphere. But then also just, and when I think of just like, from when I started running to today, uh, the amount of like just different things that have changed from when I first started running to today and what new things kind of entered in the middle of that. Cause you always think about like, well, what would have been like, you know, you always hear people who've been like, Either they're older and they're retired or they're no longer like really focusing on performance any longer. And they talk about like, well, if we had that when we were, you know, we would, you know, super shoes gets this one a lot now too. Cause with running, you know, you can get a pretty good performance boost from just shoe technology that you yeah. wouldn't have had even six years ago. So I'm like, I'm always curious when there's like, like what is happening now that, that I'm going to look back on, or that's like a generation before me is going to look back on and be like, oh, I wonder what, what that would have done if we would have had that or known more about that at the time. So um, I think there's, there's just been a ton of research. I think even more just really recently with exogenous ketones and what their potential is. So the last time I think I did a really deep dive on this particular topic with a guest anyway, was when uh, I had Brianna Stubbs come on. Yeah the show back in, I believe that was probably in like 
2019 maybe. So at that point in time, we were uh, talking a lot about where the research was there. There was a lot of like commentary around it's in its infancy. And this is what we think we might know. Here's some speculation, but we haven't confirmed this, like a lot of that. And where I think the research was pointing at the time was there's likely some sort of a recovery component to exogenous mm -hmm. ketones, but perhaps like no clear evidence towards a performance in terms of like direct where if I take this during my race or during my workout, I'm going to likely get some sort of advantage from this product without or versus without it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's maybe starting to change, or at least we're getting more evidence to point in that direction where there's, there's, there's some application for it outside of just the recovery sphere. So I definitely want to jump into some of that with you today, but before we get rolling with some of that, that exciting stuff, uh, it might be good just to kind of talk about maybe a little bit of the history of exogenous ketones and kind of where it's all come, because it's definitely getting a lot more spotlight today, but people probably would be surprised at like kind of how long the, the, the timeline actually is with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, uh, no, Brian is, Brian is probably the, definitely one of the top experts in, in the world on ketone metabolism and, and she's fantastic. Um, but as far as the history goes, it, it is, it is quite a, a fascinating history. So, um, I would say for, for the longest time, uh, researchers, and this is maybe in just the, the 1900s, researchers have viewed ketones as really two, in two ways. Number one, as a very dangerous, dangerous thing if you were diabetic, um, because if you enter a state of ketoacidosis, which means you have a ton of ketones in your system, um, that can be, that can be very, very dangerous. Um, so they didn't understand that there actually were potentially, um, let's say, let's say benefits to having ketones in your system. They would just view high levels of blood ketones as, as a bad thing. Um, and then there started to be more and more research behind, um, adolescent uh, epilepsy seemed to help a lot having uh, children on very low carbohydrate diets. Um, and then they started to learn more about, about the presence of ketones and what that can, that can do to the brain. And then I believe it was in the sixties, 1960s that the Soviets were actually using um, a low carbohydrate diet again, because exogenous ketones did not exist at that time. So they were using um, low carbohydrate diets to help with schizophrenia. So again, more of a, on the neurological side, okay, well, this seems to, to, to benefit uh, or, or have benefits. And then um, the late Dr. Richard Veach, who was at the NIH, um, he studied under um, Hans Kreb, uh, Sir Hans Kreb, uh, which is what the Kreb cycle is named after. Um, he started to really look into the benefits of ketones and, and really what their function was in the body. Um, and he started to, to discover some pretty, pretty interesting things. And as far as the history of exogenous ketones go, um, in the early 90s, uh, Veach, having already understood that ketones may be very beneficial from an energetics perspective um, within the body, the heart, the brain, um, he presented, or sorry, he, he gave um, an exogenous beta-hydroxybutyrate to um, Dr. Karen Clark, who was at Harvard at the time. Um, she was a, a specialist in cardiac metabolism. Um, she had one of the few machines where you can actually test energetics on a heart. Um, so he came and he, and he provided, um, Dr. Clark with, 
um, beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the ketone that you're going to be using for, for energy in your body. Um, she tested it on the heart and she was, she was blown away at how efficient the heart was with, with that uh, molecule. So then she decided to dedicate her life to studying ketones um, and their impact alongside Dr. Veach. And then, so they did that all through the 90s um, with, some, with some pretty extraordinary results. And then in the early 2000s, uh, DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, um, it's really the, the venture capital arm of the Department of Defense is a good way to think about it. Um, they invest in all emerging technologies that can help the uh, US from a defense perspective. So um, whether it be drones, the internet, GPS, um, they were all, um, those were all early investments from, from DARPA. DARPA had a program in 2003 called Metabolic Dominance. They were looking for a fuel source for soldiers on the battlefield um, to help them with physical capabilities and, and, and cognitive acuity because when the soldiers were, were on the battlefield for extended periods of time, they were losing a lot of that. So um, Clark and Veach presented their research on ketones to this program. Um, and DARPA ended up granting them around $10 million to create an exogenous version of ketones to be able to eat or drink for the soldiers. Um, it took them around two years to do this, to actually create this exogenous form of, of this molecule um, and to be able to deliver it safely within the body. Um, so they tested everything you can think of, um, including a lot of the things that are on the market today. Um, but they ended up creating a molecule that was beta-hydroxybutyrate. Um, and it's, it's really difficult, and I'll, I'll get into this when we talk about the differences between the various products out there, but um, beta-hydroxybutyrate being an acid, it's very difficult to take on its own. You would have a lot of negative side effects um, from the acidity, whether it be your stomach lining or the enamel on your teeth. So you really needed a way to deliver high amounts of BHB beta-hydroxybutyrate into the system. Um, so they ended up binding it BHB to a ketogenic precursor called R13-butanediol in an ester. So an ester bond is just an oxygen bond where you can, we can bind two different compounds to one another. Um, and that way you can increase the amount of BHB you're taking in at one time safely. Um, so they ended up with that molecule in 2005. That's kind of what they went with. And then, then the research started. So in 05, they, they did all the, the safety studies um, and started doing the rat studies um, and then moved on to humans. So that was really the first exogenous ketone. Um, and of course, because of its age, it's definitely the most tested, uh, really by far. Um, and it's still been the most effective. Um, and it's, we know it's the most effective for a lot of reasons. Um, but but the, for people to understand, the goal of taking an exogenous ketone is to increase blood ketones safely and effectively to these levels that have been proven to be beneficial. Um, so... They did research for around 15 years, patented it, trademarked it, um, did everything they needed to do. And then in 2018, and they weren't selling it at, at the time, um, there were specific athletes that were using it through the 2010s. Um, I don't think I can necessarily speak about them yet, but or, or at all. But um, at that time, I think it was still like $3,000 for one 
serving. So really expensive to manufacture still is, but of course the, the cost has come down a lot. Um, and then once they figured out how to produce it a lot cheaper, um, this company HVMN, um, they approached um, the holding company of the patent um, of the molecule um, to, to sell the molecule in the United States um, exclusively. So HVMN came out with their original ketone product, which was just uh, what's known as Delta G um, in 2018. And I believe they sold it for around a year and a half. Um, and in that time, um, credit to those guys, they definitely <clears throat> helped educate the market on what ketones are or, or really what Delta G can do, um, which is the name of the molecule. And um, they even were able to get a $6 million SOCOM grant, Special Operations Command grant to study Delta G uh, at altitude, um, which was which is really, really important for the technology. And then um, just two years ago, um, the holding company that, that holds the patents decided to just sell Delta G on our own. Um, and so we've been selling Delta G under our own brand for, for two years now. So that's kind of the, the progress of, of, let's say, exogenous ketones. And because of the, tech, the early research around the technology, a lot of people came into the space attempting to replicate some benefits um, and to, to use ketones as an, as an actual product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because it sounds like, like all of the research that we're kind of looking at that has some weight behind it was, was more or less kind of spearheaded by, uh, by uh, Professor Clark and the, the Oxford lab along with that DARPA funding. And then it was kind of a, a step of like, well, what do we do with this now that we have it? And obviously, like you said, at the beginning, $3,000 a serving is going to go nowhere uh, on the market other than a few people. So having a way to kind of get that out into people's hands in a, a relatively affordable manner is probably the next step. So then it sounds like uh, it was just like outsourcing the the recipe or the formula so to speak to to groups that were willing to kind of play around with that side of things but now it's at a point where where delta g is is looking to kind of just you know go direct yeah no exactly and and, and we are working on the price it's just a, a very unique manufacturing process but um there are avenues for us to make it a lot cheaper and that's kind of our uh let's say hypothesis is that that within five years when we get the price down um I would say a majority of people will be taking ketones every day. Um, it, it appears as though there's no clear downside and there is a lot of upside, a lot of potential upside to being in ketosis for let's say three to six hours a day outside of, of any kind of performance benefits. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things when you kind of just spelled out the timeline with all of that is when people hear exogenous ketones, they think it's a relatively new thing. And I could totally see someone thinking like, well, what are the long-term repercussions of this? I mean, you may have people that have been using them for like double digit years though, in mm -hmm. some capacity through the testing process and things like that. So is, uh, obviously you don't have to mention any names, but is that something that's been, are there, are there secret people out there who've been playing around with this stuff for a decade plus and are still, are still in good health? <laughs> no, for sure. It's, it's crazy. So we, I get a call with a, a Tour de France athlete um, recently, and he was on the first trial of Delta G back in 2015 mm -hmm. and he's been using it pretty much the entire time. Um, 
and and outside of let's say athletes uh and 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 we have a few um a few other athletes in, in the same boat who still use it but um as far as how much to take a day or how much people have been taking a day for quite a while um we have some people with neurological conditions um, who have been taking upwards of 100 grams. So let's say four, four or three of our of our highest dose products um, every day for around four or five years, with with really no negative side effects, um, and it seems to it seems to help them a lot. But we're we're classified as a food by the FDA, not a therapeutic. But um, but yeah, we've had people taking a lot, a lot of it uh, for for many, many years, um, which I don't think any other any other products can probably say. Yeah, I think that's a good spot to maybe chat a little about just like the types of ketones that are out there on the market mm-hmm. now. As with anything that gets I mean, even one research study showing any any type of benefit, you start to see the market kind of turn its head towards it, mm-hmm. and then you have you know, everything from, and this is everything that ever has come to market for the most part, you have like different variations of it. And one of the things that I think I needed to get a little more educated on in the last year was just what is the actual interplay between the different types of stuff out there? I think people listening to this, who've got some background probably recognize that there's ketone salts and there's ketone esters, but could you just talk to us a little bit about just the different types of ketones and what maybe differentiates them? Yeah, of course, of course. So, um, I think it's always it's always best to start maybe at the bottom of this of this ladder and and the, the when I say the bottom I mean impact to blood ketones mm-hmm. um, because again that's really the goal if you're like all right well I want a, a product that can increase my increase my ketones okay well so so let's say at the bottom of the ladder you're going to have which I'm sure a lot of you've heard of um, MCT or medium chain triglycerides um, mostly through oil. Um, this is of course, very easy to mobilize fat. And I think it's important to understand for for your audience, endogenous production of ketones is really the mobilization of fat in in the form of fatty acids, those fatty acids being sent to the liver and then converted into ketones to be sent across the body and into the brain. So medium chain triglycerides are very, is, is a type of fat that's very easy to mobilize. Um, if you take a lot of MCT oil, you will get a increase in, in blood ketones, not a meaningful amount at all. And because it's a very, very cheap product, um, some researchers had tried in the past to use MCT oil to study ketones. Uh, the issue with that is it's not going to increase your blood ketones very much at all. And also the amount it would take to increase your blood ketones even a little bit uh, would be very, very difficult to take in just from a GI perspective. It's a, it's a lot of fat. Um, so that's really probably the bottom. Um, next up, you have what's called R13-butanediol. Um, I mentioned it earlier as part of the Delta-G molecule. And the Delta-G molecule, which I'll get to, it, it just uses R13-butanediol as, a, as more of a delivery mechanism. But R13-butanediol is an alcoholic ketogenic precursor. So it's kind of like MCT oil in the sense that it'll convert into ketones in the liver. Um, again, issue is it's not going to convert into very much, um, and it hasn't been studied pretty much at all. Um, just taking R one three butane dial straight. The only the only study I've seen uh, really uh, was done by was done by Dan Plews, um, who's a who's an exercise phys PhD, but also a pretty pretty intense triathlete. Um, He's a two time guest, so our, fan, our oh there you go, nice. No, we're a big we're a huge fan of Dan. Um, 
or Dr. Plews. Um, but he, he did a study using R13, or he, he did a study using 1,3-butane-dial, actually the S-form. Um, and when they tried to increase their blood ketones enough into the, let's call it the ergogenic range, which I can get to, um, they had all these negative side effects that you would get from ethanol. So there would be nausea, they would, they're pretty much falling off their bikes, um, dizziness, um, all the things that you wouldn't want as an endurance athlete, of course. Um, so yeah, there's just, there's just really no research behind it. Um, and also it's just not going to increase your blood ketones very much. Um, so then next step up, we have what are called ketone salts, which if you go to GNC or, or, or any place like that, vitamin shop, you'll see quote unquote ketones. There's a, I think maybe a hundred percent chance that those are ketone salts. Um, as I mentioned earlier, taking BHB on its own is, is very, very difficult because of its acidity. Um, so a very cheap way of taking in BHB is by binding it to a salt. So it's really cheap. When I say cheap, it's cheap to manufacture. So you can bind it to a salt, whether it be sodium, calcium, magnesium, or potassium. Um, but the issue with ketone salts is most likely at best, one gram of BHB is going to be bound to one gram of a salt. Uh, one gram of BHB is not very much. It's not going to really increase your blood ketones very much at all. And that's usually around one serving of a ketone salt. So if you were to take, let's say, five grams of BHB, still not, not a lot, especially for endurance athletes, that means you're taking in 5,000 milligrams of whatever salt combination they want you to use, or they, they decided to use. Again, probably not ideal. Um, and I understand that people may say, well, you're getting ketones and electrolytes you're not getting very much ketones and you're getting an electrolyte mix that is not probably ideal for performance. So um, you're way better off just taking um, Delta G and a electrolyte mix. Um, so that's ketone salts again. And I keep, I keep going back to this. It's a very, very inefficient way of increasing blood ketones, which is the ultimate goal, right? So then uh, lastly, we have uh, ketone esters. Uh, Delta G, as I mentioned, is a ketone ester because it is beta hydroxybutyrate bound to that delivery mechanism R13-butanediol with an oxygen bond, so an ester bond. Um, there are other forms of esters out there. There is um, really two main ones outside of Delta G. There is um, a R13-butanediol ester, but it's bound to two, um, two let's say, wings of MCT. Um, again, that is, that is way more on the endogenous production of ketones, which, uh, some people think may be a little bit better. Um, and we can, we can get into that, but, um, but again, MCT oil, it's, it's going to be difficult to take in a lot or enough to increase your blood ketones to these levels that you'd want to, especially as an endurance athlete. Um, so we have, and that's called a diester because there's two really legs of, of oxygen bonds. And then there's one more that's an acetoacetate diester. And I know I'm kind of throwing a lot at, at your audience, but acetoacetate is another ketone body that your, that your, that your body will produce. Um, I, I don't know, to be honest with you, if there's enough research behind acetoacetate to really understand what it does in the body or, or, or why it's maybe important. Um, and the acetoacetate ester is bound to, again, two, two wings, let's say, of R13-butanediol. 
So R13-butane diol is, is just a really good way to deliver some of these things into the body. Um, but acetoacetate, again, um, I think there's been a couple of studies on it. I think it's still kind of a question mark in the research community. Um, of course, Brianna can probably talk more about this, but um, I still don't think that, that people really understand it much. And again, this whole category as a whole, it's, it's still relatively new from a research perspective, but um, I think acetoacetate is, still needs to be studied a lot more. Um, but as you, I hope that gives your audience a good idea of when you keep stepping up this ladder, that's, that's kind of what you'll get from, from a product perspective. And um, I want people to understand that <clears throat> if you are taking these products, it's really important to understand that anybody can call anything a ketone, but it's clear that not all ketones are, are created equal. Like you can, you can call, um, let's say R13-butane diol on its own a ketone, clearly not a ketone. Uh, ketone salts, I guess you can call it a ketone because it has one arm of, of BHB. But again, is that really taking an exogenous ketone? Yeah, technically, I guess, but um, it's not really accomplishing probably what you would want with, with a product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you said some interesting things that I was... Uh that that I kind of was surprised, not surprising to me when I first heard about them, but it, it kind of made sense in a, in a way to kind of understand it, which was like, especially with the ketone salts was, uh, I mean, you were talking about like the one-to-one -one gram uh, mm -hmm. from, you know, ketone to salt. And when people wonder like, can I just get two for one with an electrolyte and the ketone? It's like, we're not talking about just an electrolyte addition here. Like when we get up to the amount of grams that you'd want in a serving in order to actually get some of the results that we're seeing in the research, we're talking about like a week's worth of salt, not just like a- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And for most people, that's way too much. Like you, you have a lot of salt in your diet. Mm -hmm. So I, I, know, I know there is um, certainly an argument to be made that, uh, which is which actually is correct that if you actually follow a very low carbohydrate diet, sometimes you're going to need to supplement with electrolytes outside of even if you're an endurance athlete, but to not only, tr I think trust is, is very important as well, because um, if you're a ketone salt company, um, maybe one of them, yeah, I'd probably say one of the, maybe, maybe two of them out there have like one or two studies you know, behind it. And they're just really safety studies. They're nothing, nothing more than that. Um, but most of the other ketone salt companies, they'll just be blends. Um, like if you look at the nutritional panel, it'll just say blend. So you really have no idea what you're getting. Um, and I think it's important um, outside of, let's say, making sure that the company you're buying from actually has some data to back up what they claim. But also, I think this is going to become more common than it is now. Um, but testing your blood ketones, if you're buying products that say they, they're going to raise your blood ketones, it's probably a good thing to do because then you're just really just wasting money. Um, and what's really exciting is, of course, this rise in, in CGM technology, continuous glucose monitor technology. Um, I believe it should have been, I heard it was first quarter this year, but obviously that hasn't happened yet. But I believe Abbott is coming out with a... Um, um, it's going to be a, a monitor that has um, glucose, uh, live glucose, live ketones, live lactate and, and live alcohol, which is kind of funny. But um, I think people testing their blood ketones is becoming more and more common. 
And um, we actually sell uh, what's called the Keto Mojo, which is definitely the most popular way to test your blood ketones um, or the, the product that's used the most, um, just because we want people to be doing it. And I think it's even just outside of the product, it's probably a good thing to be doing if, if, if that's something you care about and you're like, well, I'm going to fast for, for 24 hours, then like measure your blood ketones and kind of see where you're at and see how you feel. Um, and then that can help guide you if you want to use exogenous ketones because um, most of the time it's just not going to make any kind of impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I've done a few episodes on the continuous glucose monitors going over kind of like where some of the positives and some of the negatives are with that mm -hmm. sort of a device. And, you know, one of the negatives that would always kind of come up was you're getting this like very immediate kind of well, continuous access to a marker yeah. And it's like, that's good for that marker, but then what about all the other markers? What is it like? So if you start chasing that marker, cause you know it, then what are you doing unknowingly to the other markers necessarily? Yeah, sure. So, so then I think like what you mentioned, like something where I think everyone probably realized this is where that product was going to head eventually was it's not going to be a single marker testing device that you can wear. It's going to be a thing where it tells you things like your blood ketones, your, um, your lactate, which again, another excellent tool that could be used for endurance training or sport in general would be having mm -hmm. a immediate access to that data when you're doing a workout and trying to stay within a specific training zone. Uh, and then, yeah, having access to like a more, like a holistic suite of information. So you can see how this is all interacting with you, like synergistically with one another. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, and it's funny how far we've come, um, with understanding the body, but we still don't really know why like especially with those even just those three ketones lactate and glucose it's like we understand how they interact with, with one another but not not really not not to a degree that would help us um really fuel perfectly or recover perfectly um so i think having that live data is going to do wonders for, for for from a research perspective primarily but also just for endurance athletes in general to say okay well um my ketone levels are, are, are here and this is what happened to my blood glucose, especially when you're taking an exogenous ketone, because there's an interesting interplay between blood ketones and glucose. Whereas if you have very high levels of blood ketones, it's going to more or less stabilize blood glucose, but it's going to limit any kind of spikes you're going to get. Um, and you could say, well, that may be not a great thing because you want these spikes for, for acute performance. It's totally fair. Um, but also if you don't get the spikes, do you get the subsequent drops, which is really our, our kind of belief that when using something like Delta G in conjunction with, with some kind of carbohydrate, um, hopefully there's a stabilization effect, but mm. all these things are interplaying and, and we, we can't really see it live. It, it, research has relied on having to do blood tests and blood panels and like trying to do that dynamically, which is really, really difficult. So with this technology, I think we're going to, it's going to really be a, a, a huge step for, for understanding nutrition, especially for performance athletes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into a, a few questions that I have with some interplay type stuff. But before we dive into that, I think uh, just talking a little bit about maybe like both the bottom and the top. So like, is there a dosage that you've seen that would suggest if you're not hitting this, you're kind of underdoing it and therefore not really getting the benefits we're looking for. And then on top of that, like, I'm sure like anything, there's an overdoing it too. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and this is just based on the, on the research that's available. Um, 
a lot of the research right now and, and the lower levels of blood ketones usually have been using ketone salts, which is why they haven't really seen much of an effect. Because if you use something like Delta G, um, research are prob- researchers are probably going to be smart enough to say, okay, well, I'd rather not miss too low as far as blood ketones go. Mm-hmm. So they're going to make sure to get up to these two and a half millimolar or three millimolar levels. Um, but uh, just based on the on the current research and, and the current data, you need to probably get up to two to three millimolar for, and, and I'll just talk about performance athletes right now, for any kind of performance or recovery benefit. Those are, the, that's kind of this, what's, what's quoted often as, as the Goldilocks range. Uh, that's kind of the range that you want to make sure to get to, because if you just get to one, it doesn't appear as though the body makes any kind of major shifts at that level, um, or there's any kind of real impact within the body at lower levels of blood ketones. Um, so, so I think, I think definitely getting up to, to at least two or maybe even two and a half, um, will, will really make an impact. Having said that with ketogenic diet studies, um, there haven't been much on the performance side, of course, but there, there's been a bit, but I, I don't think many good results, but, um, or actually some have, have good results, but it's a little bit more mixed. Um, but as far as the cognitive benefits go, I think there have been some ketogenic diet positives at the lower end. So the one to one and a half millimolar, I believe there have been some studies and they, these have been more on the ketogenic diet side that have shown cognitive improvements which is why we more or less try to segment our products in a particular way. Whereas you need to take, we we advise people to get up to that two to three millimolar level for endurance performance or recovery. While we say to people, you know, if you just get to one or one and a half, or maybe even two, you'll still see some cognitive benefits from a performance perspective, a cognitive performance perspective, but also from a cognitive health perspective at these at these lower levels at from one into one and a half so people can take less let's say delta g um and that's really where the research is right now i'm sure we're going to learn a lot more in the next five years but higher blood ketones is where you kind of need to get to for for if you're an endurance athlete for either performance or or recovery interesting yeah and then there was uh, also the kind of synergy it plays with caffeine i know there was uh some looking into that where that that was a pairing where for for some reason the caffeine uh sort of gave the exogenous ketones a boost could you talk just a little bit about how that all interplays yeah so we have um we still have some r&d at oxford uh just because of our, our ceo um she's still there but uh we've we've done a lot of our own internal testing and and the idea, funny enough, came from a, a special operator um, who would combine the two, maybe just through like brute force. He was like, I want coffee and I want ketones. So I'm just going to combine <laughs> the two. Um, and he said he would feel a lot better and he would, he would actually measure his blood ketones sometimes and he would notice a bigger spike. So we, we started to experiment with it. And we can't really explain it yet. We haven't, of course, done any research on it, but um, in, in, the, in the conventional sense, um, but when you combine caffeine with something like Delta G, it appears as though there's a symbiotic or co-potentiating relationship between the two, where you don't need as much Delta G to achieve certain ketosis levels uh, when you combine it with, with caffeine. 
And also it appears, and this is of course subjective, that you use the caffeine more effectively. You don't, you don't feel as spiky, let's say. Um, and of course, these are not scientific terms. It's, <laughs> it's more like N of like 100 kind of subjective um, feedback. But and I think intuitively, though, it does make sense um, because caffeine being a stimulant, using up your energy, using up a bit of your energy, while at the same time, you're providing this really clean form of energy. So um, that's kind of our understanding of it right now. And of course, we, we still have to do some, some more research on it. But it seems to be very, very popular amongst um, our customers and just endurance athletes combining the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you sort of alluded to this before too, uh, but what's like the interplay then with carbohydrates? Because I think with some folks, when they're thinking of low carb ketogenic diets, they're thinking along the lines of in order to get the benefits I'm looking for here, the cost is the absence of carbohydrate, mm-hmm. which, you know, depending on what you're doing, there's a trade-off there. Mm-hmm. So how does this mean? Is this, is this kind of like a go-between where you can essentially, I don't want to say get away with carbohydrates, but you can kind of use that tool perhaps a little more aggressively than you'd be able to, and still get some of the benefits from both sides of those uh, low carb and moderate to high carb sides yeah, of the for, aisle. For sure. And, and it's important for people to understand that Delta G is completely diet agnostic. You don't have to follow a low carbohydrate diet to use Delta G. And, and, and a good way to think about a molecule like Delta G or exogenous ketones is as a fourth macronutrient. So you have your fat, protein, carbohydrates, and then ketones. So you're really just eating ketones and then using them as energy. And of course, there's this interplay between all these different substrates in your body, uh, like fat, glucose, and and ketones. But um, we actually encourage people to take carbohydrates with the product, especially intra-workout or race. Um, And that's really for for two reasons. Number one, um, with high levels of blood ketones, and, and we have a few studies pointing to this, it appears to help with glucose uptake. So um, when you're taking um, an exogenous form of glucose, there are some things that may be blocking some kind of glucose uptake and glycogen resynthesis, but high levels of blood ketones seem to help with that. Um, So that's number one. Then number two, as I mentioned, there is this interplay with high levels of blood ketones and blood glucose. Whereas if the, the, and this is maybe one of the potential downsides that you'd want to be aware of, especially if you're taking way too much of the product. Um, but it does, let's say, limit to a degree how spiky your blood glucose can be. Now, that can be a good thing for a lot of people. They don't want that spike and then, and then crash, but it can lower your blood glucose. So if you're taking them both at the same, if you're taking just Delta G, and you have pretty low blood glucose as it is, um, it can push your blood glucose to a level that you wouldn't want it to be at, whether it be hypoglycemic or not. Um, so we, we do like it when people take it, these, these substrates together, because like I said, it, it can help you actually use the glucose more effectively, but also it can, it can really reduce the probability or the, or the likelihood that your blood glucose will enter a state of, of hypoglycemia or, or like I said, a place that you wouldn't want it to be. Um, but having said that, there are plenty of people who take it without carbohydrates and are totally fine. Uh, but I think if you're used to 
taking carbohydrates, then it'd probably be good to take, um, take together. And as far as taking way too much, we have had like one or two athletes do this, but, um, and that's just a function of some endurance athletes thinking that just more is better. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, um, so for instance, this one Ironman athlete didn't really understand the product well, and I, I wish he spoke with me or with us beforehand, but, um, he viewed it more as like a, like a glucose or a caffeine source. So, um, I think this is our like eight or nine into his Ironman. It was like on the run. He hadn't taken much glucose. He was pretty, he was pretty beat. And he just took like, I think two or three of our tactical product, which is like the highest oh, yeah. serving size. He just took them back to back. And so he probably was at like, I don't know, maybe like five or six, uh, BHB levels in his system, which subsequently for, for sure, I didn't, of course I wasn't there to test, but he said he bonked. Um, it probably just pushed his blood glucose way too low. Whereas he just, he just didn't have a good finish. Mm. So, so that's the only thing to be conscious of if, and I, I if you just follow our protocol, that won't happen. Um, but, and, and it, a, a really good thing, I think for people too, who do take a lot of carbohydrates and who think they need a lot, um, but maybe have maybe kind of dance on this line of GI distress with, with um, carbohydrates, you can, and, and another good way to think about ketones are just as, as really as more aggregate energy. So um, if you know, you need, let's say 70 grams of carbohydrates an hour, just, just that's kind of what you've established, but like anything over that, you're going to have some kind of GI distress. You're just, your stomach just isn't, isn't uh, capable of handling more. Well, you can take like 60 grams of carbohydrates and then take that, those, take, take like 20 grams of Delta G just to lower the chances that you're going to have any kind of GI distress, but also you have theoretically more, just, just the amount of energy that you would need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like there's a couple things I want to touch on with this, because this is interesting stuff is just the, the interplay during like an event like that, where, yeah, obviously like, especially when you get into like triathlon and ultra marathon, like the digestion becomes a big component of the, the event itself. It becomes a variable that is very much in need of some, some practicing and some, yeah. some like personal experience. And there's going to be some variability from one person to the next. And there's also going to be some ability to potentially train or not train that aspect one when you're doing your, your, your workout or build up to the races. So um, that was one of my questions actually, when I first started playing around with this was first of all, like, am I noticing anything by introducing this into some of my key training sessions? And then the second mm -hmm. question was, okay, if it does indicate that this is likely some sort of a, a, a value add in say a three hour long run, how does that play out over the course of like four or five X that? Yeah. So I actually did, um, the Rocky raccoon hundred mile almost exclusively to stress test the digestive side of things for me personally to find out like how does this fit into my training or fit into my 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 race protocol and is there any differences i need to be mindful of where once you start extrapolating the long run out how does that end up working out so my approach was i would take uh, one bottle of um ketone performance which is the blue one by mm -hmm. you guys before the race even started as kind of just like a precursor because that's what I would do for like a workout maybe I should even rewind and say when I was trying this out in training if I had say like a three-hour long run I would just take one of those bottles before yeah. and then call it good um 
then during the race itself, I would just, I take another bottle about every three hours. So I think it was like maybe four bottles total at every, like essentially on three hour intervals at, in just under 15 hours. And I didn't have any digestive issues. Granted, I'm also fueling a little lower than say that example of 70 grams. So uh, I wasn't stacking it on top of like the upper limits of threshold of, of digestibility. So maybe that mm -hmm. was, was good for me, but it was, it was in addition to what I would normally do. So it would have been an increase in intake to some degree. Uh, so I just want to kind of maybe hear your take on one is, uh, is my protocol something that you would suggest is the right direction or what tweaks would you maybe make to that if I were to, and then like from the athletes, I know, like I saw somewhere that like almost 50% of tour de France athletes are now using some form of exogenous ketone on, on race day. Uh, I have no clue if that stat is accurate or not, but uh, I know the tour de France athletes have been using it, uh, in a fairly large capacity relative to maybe other sports. Uh, but yeah, what are some protocols given what I do that you would maybe suggest, uh, that I could play around with. Yeah. So, um, the protocol that we recommend, let's call it our gold standard protocol is based again, just on the research. And then number two on the feedback from our professional athletes that we work with. Um, and, and really quickly, yeah, I think that the percentage probably understates it of the tour de France. I mean, we have inroads with every tour de France team. Um, I can't talk about which ones or, well, I just said, I kind of gave it away, but, um, <laughs> we, uh, no, there's, there's certainly, um, and, and that's good to see just from our perspective, because I'd, I'd have to argue that Tour de France riders probably know more about, and then they're in the nutritionists and, and performance coaches probably know more about nutrition than anybody in the athletic world. So if they're all using it, um, whether it be for performance or recovery, that, that probably means there's something there. Um, which is good. But um, as far as protocol goes, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's good to be within that two to three millimolar range. Like that's, that's, that seems to be the right place to be for as long as you can. Um, and most people can accomplish that by let's, let's use the performance product that you've been using as an example. Um, most people can accomplish that by taking one full bottle of that um, around 20 minutes before they start, um, because that's how long it takes for your blood ketones to peak using the product. So you'd really want to start when they're at their highest. Um, and then every two hours you would take another one and you'd, you'd try to take it with some carbohydrates. Um, now everyone's going to be a bit different and especially it, it becomes a bit more of a question mark when you're doing something like a hundred mile race. Um, because we've, we've worked a lot with marathoners. Um, of course, triathletes, that's a really long race as well. And they seem to stick to this type of, of protocol really every two hours. And the reason it's, it's two hours is because let's say you get, you take one full bottle and you get up to three millimolar or a little bit higher than three millimolar. And it's going to be a bit weight dependent. So if you're, um, a lot lighter, or if you're, let's say a female and you're 110 pounds, you probably need a little bit less to get up to th three millimolar or a little higher, but let's say you get up to three or 3.2 millimolar with that, <clears throat> with that full bottle, you're going to be using the ketones quite quickly throughout those two hours. So your blood ketones will probably drop to, to one and a half after two hours. And that's when you'd want to take more, which is kind of why, why it's two hours. But um, it's important for people to understand that that's kind of 
a, a protocol where someone's coming to me and saying, okay, well, I have unlimited resources. I want to make the most out of taking Delta G. How would I do that? That's kind of what I would advise them to do. And of course I would advise them beforehand to just test your blood ketones and, and kind of see how high you get because everyone's going to be a, a bit different, but um, it's not as though if you deviate from that protocol, for instance, like you, what you did, um, not to like a massive degree, but um, it's, it's not as though you're going to have a bad time. You're just probably going to spend a little bit longer outside of that range. So it's still going to be beneficial, but, um, but the research right now, I, I believe it, it just wants you to stay within that range. But if like, let you'd pretty good results, I think using that, that protocol, I would never say, okay, then, then you need to change it. You know, because it's such a, it's one of these products that, and I think like a lot of products, of course, where, where people are going to react a little bit differently to it and everyone's going to see different benefits um, from it. So um, we're, we're still learning a lot about how people should be taking it. Um, we've done our best w combining the research and more of the anecdotal. And even though we get a lot of, we still get a lot of, a, a ton of data from some of our athletes, like Matt Hansen is, is a doctor and he's, he's, he collects more data. He's a triathlete, a professional triathlete, and he collects so much data for us. Um, and then Tim O'Donnell, of course, he's a, he's another professional triathlete, um, who we work with. Um, he's, he's just an absolute vet with, with this stuff. So, um, he gives us a lot of data as well, but, um, that's kind of what it appears to be the, the, the best way to take it. Um, but everyone's going to be a bit different, you know, and, and, and like I said, I would never want somebody to completely change what they're doing, um, if it's been working. So, mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the protocol that we, that we try to stick to, but, um, iterating off of that appears to be the best thing for people to do. Um, and also like, for, like, for instance, um, one iteration is taking smaller doses, but more frequently, like for instance, Dan Plews, he takes, I believe, uh, 10 or 15 grams every like 45 minutes. Okay. And that will still get him probably to that, the middle of that range, but he's going to be starting more in the middle of that range versus like getting all the way to the top. And he seems to like that a lot better. Mm. Is there some sort of variance that we're going to see between people with different dietary practices? Cause I know like, you know, Dan and myself skew a little more towards the low carbohydrate way of eating versus say someone who's in a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. If we're targeting that two to three millimoles, is it possible that say somebody on a lower carbohydrate or even a stricter ketogenic diet is going to be able to do or hit that, hit that target much quicker or with much less and then have like mm -hmm. some variance with that, that frequency of dosing or even quantity of dosing? I think it matters more uh, about it matters more for whatever you're eating around the time you're taking the mm -hmm. ketones. So if you're, I, I think this is regardless of, of your general diet, but if you're fasted um, and you haven't eaten, let's say for, for an hour, um, an hour or two, let's say, um, you're going to get a slightly higher blood ketone reading than if you eat a, a meal whether it be a lot of carbohydrates or not, I think I'm sure that that carbohydrates will play a bit into it. But um, if I had just eaten and then taken the product, then I'll get a slightly lower, lower mm -hmm. reading, not a meaningful amount, but it's gonna be slightly lower. Um, and with the ketogenic athletes, especially it becomes a little bit more tricky as well, because um, if you already have a, a decently high blood ketone reading, um, I wouldn't advise you to take a full bottle of of the performance product. Um, because then again, you'll probably just get too high. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I think it's just, and, and usually if you're a ketogenic athlete, you have a pretty good idea of where your blood ketones are. Um, and if you don't, I would, I would certainly encourage you to, to measure, um, again, outside of even, even taking the products, it's just an important thing to understand how you feel and where your blood ketones are. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the, the, that's the area where it can actually matter a lot with taking the product is if you are a ketogenic athlete, um, understanding where your blood ketones are so that you're not taking way too much and then pushing yourself, um, let's say a little bit too high so that your blood glucose drops to a level you wouldn't want it to be at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause like that triathlete you mentioned, he essentially kind of fast forward his way probably into a state of ketosis and then hit way too much of the, the product itself and then drove it even higher. So I could see, you know, if someone's on like a very, very strict, very low carbohydrate diet, um, you know, they may be sitting much closer to that range to begin with. So it would be just a little bit of a different, different strategy perhaps, but, uh, same kind of target. It'll be interesting when we get those wearables so you can actually really find yeah, and personalize yeah. it. Well, and I was, I was, um, talking about, um, and I, I believe, you know, him. I, I, I think you do, uh, Mike McKnight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, and, and, um, apparently, uh, relatively recently, I think he did a, a 24 hour, no calorie. Yeah. <laughs> He's done a hundred miles and 24 hours, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got like 112 miles or something, mm -hmm. um, which is, which is insane. And I was asked if using a product like Delta G would have helped him. And my question, my answer was like, I don't know. Like I, if. It's like, Mike, you're all by yourself out there on those zero calorie, hundred mile stuff. There's no precedent. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. And, and, um, I'm sure that he was producing ketones. Yeah. I, yeah, I would I imagine, that. you know, so, um, I, I, he probably just fast forwarded his body into like this really ketogenic state, I would, I would presume. So, um, I don't know if Delta G would have helped. So it's, 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 it's a really unique product in that sense where it's not going to be just this, like, yes, you should be taking this amount. And we have to have some kind of protocol that, that people can start with. But um, that's why we, as we were talking about before the call, that's why we have these, these consultation programs um, where people can talk about really what their fueling is already and where Delta G can kind of fit into that because it's going to be relatively unique to, to each person, mm -hmm. even though there is a really good place to start because most people are going to be fueling with carbohydrates and are going to be taking a certain amount of carbohydrates. So it's relatively easy from that perspective, but also everyone's a bit different, you know, and, and, um, I think it's, it's really great from our perspective to see how, how many people are getting very scientific with their nutrition mm -hmm. versus just like saying, all right, well, I'm going to take a, a 200 calorie goo every hour. Yeah. And yeah. Be done with it. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It gets interesting. I mean, there's like to a, to a degree you have kind of some population level stuff where it's like, this is probably a good place to start. But then when you start getting into any sort of performance related thing, then you start recognizing where you need to alterate or, or deter some to some degree from that for your own personal stuff. So it's always a kind of interesting to hear like when people yeah. are doing the, the real deep testing and stuff like that. Yeah. And the funny thing is that everyone just learns the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to figure it out. Um, I don't want to miss though, because you did mention that like for people who are listening to this and they're like, okay, I'm sort of grasping this, but before I go and really start putting it to test. I want to make sure I'm doing it right. You, you actually offer a, a service on your website where they can just sign up and talk to you and get dialed in. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily it hasn't gotten too overwhelming yet. <laughs> um, but uh, 
Yeah, you can just go on our website and you can sign up for a call with me personally. I've, I've done all of them. Uh, you can just book a time on my calendar. Um, it's really fun for us, or let's say for me, um, because <clears throat> not only um, can I learn a ton from the customer, right? I, I, I get to learn maybe what questions they have, what they're confused about, um, who's interested in the product, maybe how they're, how they're hearing about it. Um, but also I can, the way I view it is um, it's a very it's a very confusing market. I mean, we've had this whole call and it's like, I kind of threw a lot out there that like, it's just, it's just kind of confusing. And, and especially with, um, and this is, just, this is just a function of, I would say the nutritional market, but you have a lot of people out there who just kind of say things that of course aren't really justifiable um, and who throw studies out there that didn't use their product and aren't, isn't anything like their product. For instance, I would argue, I bet you that probably 90 or 95% of the positive ketone, exogenous ketone studies out there are Delta G studies. But you go on certain product pages of other companies and all the studies there are Delta G studies, but they say, hey, look at this study that shows ketones do X, Y, Z. And they just have a ketone in their product. So they're yeah, extrapolating it quite generously. Or sometimes, yeah. not even a, or sometimes not even a ketone, you know? <laughs> um, so it's very confusing. So it helps for us to and and we, we i keep saying we i try not to make it like some kind of sales pitch for delta g um because i just think i think that's kind of um cheap i just try to educate people on ketones you know and say well here's this study here's this study here's this study and this is what what seems to be really beneficial you know we're still learning a lot but it appears as though um ketones can help with a lot of things um and then i just say okay well you don't really have to believe me just go look at some abstracts of, of, of some of these studies um, that we have really no affiliation with. So mm -hmm. um, I view it as more or less training um, salespeople to talk in an educated way about ketones and to really tell their friends and make it more of a grassroots thing, because um, I think that's super, super important um, versus just like, telling you that this product is going to make you lose 25 pounds or yeah. that it's going to make you a Tour de France rider. I'd rather people really understand what ketones are and maybe where some gaps are in the research. Cause of course there are still some, um, but also helping them understand that, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be something that's worth a try. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little uh, eye opening to see the amount of research that has come out over the years. I think that, Delta G alone has 50 plus published clinical studies and mm -hmm. over 20 ongoing at the moment. So mm -hmm. what we're going to learn on top of what has been published is, is really interesting. And before I let you go, Brian, I did want to talk to you a little bit about one of the more recent studies that came out that you had sent my way. And it was, it was, it was kind of surprising because when, when we first spoke, you were very curious about kind of what my what my kind of in field experience was with the product, if I noticed anything different and, I think my, my comment was, I didn't feel like it gave me like this big energy boost or anything, the way you'd maybe get from like, you know, 20 milligrams of caffeine, or if you like hit that, you know, hit a carbohydrate source or something, you kind of feel yourself perk up. It felt more to me like it was like this narrowing of focus that I was able to have where it was it allowed me to kind of focus on, okay, what's the next step during this workout or the next step versus kind of letting other things that were either going to happen later that day or later that run kind of crowd out what I should be thinking about in the moment and just kind of gave me that like little bit of like more like heat in 
key in focus. And then like after we had that conversation, a few weeks later, a study came out that reported on uh, ketone esters, uh, citing that uh, it appeared that they were increasing circulating, circulating dopamine concentration and mm -hmm. improves mental alertness as well as improving post-exercise muscular inflammation in ultra endurance exercise. So yeah. like when I say ultra endurance exercise, my, my ears perk up a little bit. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be very specific to what I'm doing versus <laughs> like, I finally don't have to extrapolate forward some like, you know, 10,000 meter study or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, we, it was, it was so funny. We had a conversation, um, exactly what you said, like you said, all right, well, th this was what I experienced with, with Delta G. And then like three weeks later, it was like, okay, ultra marathoners using Delta G felt this, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, it was, it was fascinating. Yeah. And, and I think, um, as far as like the consensus on research goes, I would say the most debated right now is physical performance physical endurance performance. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would say next up, which is less debated, and I, I, I can get into this quickly, and a super exciting research field is on the recovery side, using um, uh, exogenous ketones, specifically uh, Delta G. And then even further up that is um, the cognitive benefits, which I think are, are quite clear. And that's more or less probably what you're experiencing where you are providing your brain with most likely its preferred fuel source that it wouldn't otherwise have. You know, even when you're doing like an endurance, um, endurance event, and you, you would imagine that the brain is probably sacrificing some of its energy needs to the body if you didn't have ketones there, which is why you may feel much more cognitively fatigued during something like that. Um, but if you can provide ketones, then there's more aggregate energy. And then a lot of that energy is going to be soaked up by the brain, mm -hmm. which is made in, in addition to the, to the dopamine effects. Um, but on the, on the recovery side, and I think I've sent you one of these as well. Um, super exciting field um, because over the last six months, there have been two studies using Delta G that have shown uh, increased EPO concentrations um, in endurance athletes. Um, it's funny whenever you mention EPO, you're always like, oh, is this going to be like, yeah, I mean, it's got a negative connotation to it. Yeah. yeah. It's just like Lance Armstrong, just kind of, uh, and, and even, uh, athletes recently in the triathlete space. But, um, but I actually spoke with one of the, the PIs on that. And I was like, is this going to like show up in a, any kind of blood test? And he's like, no, it's it, it, funny enough. It's actually endogenous production. So actually natural production mm -hmm. of EPO, but yeah, there was, there were two studies that showed, um, an increase of 20% and then I believe 28%. Um, of EPO. And of course, um, if you're an endurance athlete, super, super important stuff. Um, that's why you find a lot of people living in, in Boulder, Colorado, they just want to train at altitude to help increase uh, things like that. So um, I think as far as, as, as things to keep an eye on, certainly on the recovery side, that seems to be a very, very hot research field. Um, and then on the cognitive side, I think, I think people are still really looking into that and um, I think the performance, it was created as a performance product. Um, but I think people are, have gotten a bit more excited about the, the recovery side and, and, and the cognitive side. But having said that, I think, I think it still can be, it can be pretty beneficial for people for performance. Um, and there are still people looking at that, but um, I think the, the recovery side, I would, I would definitely keep an eye on that. Do you know what the, what the protocol they used for mm -hmm. either of those, the, the EPO study or the, mm -hmm. um, 
the dopamine concentration, post-exercise muscular inflammation uh, studies, if they had, was that kind of more or less along the protocols that you spelled out before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for the recovery uh, EPO ones, it was just a full bottle, 25 grams of the performance product um, right when you're done with, with any kind of training. Um, one of them, the first one, they took a full bottle, I believe every two hours uh, for, so they took three total bottles and they took it every two hours afterwards. And then the, uh, the second study, uh, they took a full bottle right after and then a full bottle before sleep, uh, which is another pretty interesting category, the sleep component. But, um, and then the endurance, the endurance, um, the ultra marathoner uh, cognitive study, I believe it was every, yeah, I think it was every two hours around the, the protocol that we recommend. Um, and again, so, so people understand taking that much, you're going to get up to those, to those, to those higher levels of blood ketones. And I, I one of the PIs and I were having a conversation about this and, and he had a lot of pilot data that pointed to you needing to get to certain levels for it to have any impact on EPO. And they were really high levels, mm-hmm. which is why we do. And we've heard that from, from a lot of different researchers. So in, in the pilot data, which is why they do shoot for higher levels of blood ketones. So um, at least from the performance and recovery side, it appears as though, as I mentioned, you need to get to those certain blood ketone levels for it to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all really interesting stuff, Brian. And I think like we've mentioned a few times on here, it'll be exciting to see where this ends up going with the more research coming out. And then obviously as, as it gets more popular and you know, the costs come down, what kind of things you can, you can do with this sort of thing. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, thanks a bunch for taking some time out of your morning to come chat about all this. Yeah, no, no. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I encourage anybody listening to this. If, if you want to learn more, or if you have any questions about something I mentioned, uh, feel free to sign up for a chat. I'd love to, I'd love to talk it through. Yeah. Where can people find you? Yeah. So Delta G ketones.com um, right on the top, kind of like a banner. It'll say, talk to, talk to a ketone expert. I think it says, um, I would never call myself an expert, but that's, <laughs> um, but you'll be on the other end of the call. <laughs> yeah. I'll be on the other end. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can just, uh, it'll allow you to just book a time on my calendar. Very cool, Brian. Well, thanks again for, for coming on. It was, it was great to chat. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Take care. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 